All right, here we go. Titus. Titus, turn to the book of Titus. If you are not already there, we're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. If you are uh, using a blue church Bible that you might have seen around the seat around you, if you're using that, it's there for you if you don't have a Bible. In that Bible, you can turn to page 998, and that'll bring you to our text. Brothers, thank you for fixing whatever needed to be fixed. So grateful for just all the service and, and help that we have here. I think we do pretty darn good uh, for the fact that we set up and tear down every week, 52 Sundays a year, and generally speaking, we don't really have very many issues. But if we do, our good folks uh, get right on it and do what they can to address those things and just grateful for them. All right, beloved. You there? Do you see the title of today's sermon? You see it? Okay. Well, this, the title is in no way meant to be a reference uh, to the 1994 American spy thriller film starring Harrison Ford and based on Tom Clancy's novel of the same name. Yeah. So it's not, it has nothing to do with that, but, but if you were to search the phrase clear, do a Google search of the phrase clear in present danger, besides the movie, you will find that it also refers to an issue taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1919, one of the court's first important decisions in the area of free speech. The court had ruled unanimously that the First Amendment, amendment, though it protects freedom of expression, does not protect what they called dangerous speech. Dangerous speech. And the case that drove this matter was a decision uh, between, I don't know how to say the gentleman's name, his name is Schneck versus the United States, something along those lines. And it concerned this man's conviction for protesting and the First World War's military draft. That man, Charles Schneck, had printed up 15,000 flyers and then distributed those, and these flyers encouraged readers, uh, citizens of the U.S., to resist the draft. There were uh, two acts that had been passed in 1917 and 1918, one called the Espionage Act and one called the Sedition Act, and those acts, they believed, the uh, government believed, criminalized such an offense. That's what the prosecutor said, that he would distribute these uh, anti-war, in a sense, literature. But Schneck argued that the Constitution allowed his expression, but the court disagreed. According to their ruling, Schneck's flyers created a clear and present danger. And so this became known as the clear and present danger doctrine of the Supreme Court. And basically what they were saying is his efforts undermined the war effort. If people actually would took, took his advice, it could threaten the security of the United States by not entering into World War I and fighting that war. 
the justice who used that terminology clear and present danger and later became part of the court's terminology, Justice Holmes said this, the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. So, interesting little piece of history. Since that time, there's been a some changes from that position and some modifications, and they do not operate uh, necessarily in that exact way anymore, clear and present danger. But I only brought all that in to introduce you to our text. In the first century, on the island of Crete, there was a matter concerning speech that also could be described as a clear and present danger. Dangerous speech that needed to be dealt with, seriously dealt with. As we will read in Titus, this dangerous speech was not to be endured or tolerated or allowed to go on by the church, but instead confronted head on. What dangerous speech was this you speak of, Jeremy? It was speech... It was speech by professing believers that contradicted and perverted the true gospel as taught by Christ's apostles. And unfortunately, beloved, this danger did not die off in the first century or only remain on the island of Crete. But continues to this very day and is found now throughout the world. So Paul's words here certainly speak today to, to us today as well, okay? With that, we're going to read the text and then we'll dive into it and we're going to pick it up in verse 9. You remember the section we just dealt with were the essential qualifications for elders. Paul is instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town on the island of Crete where there is a Christian community. These elders had to meet certain qualifications in order to be or to have that position in the church. And one of those qualifications is picked up in verse 9, and then in verse 10, he continues to give an explanation for why these things matter so much that they be men that measure up to these qualifications, especially the one in verse 9. So we'll pick it up in verse 9 and read through to the end of 16. Follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of God's word. The Apostle Paul wrote, He must hold firm, in verse 9, to the trustworthy word as taught, that is the elder, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And again, we took care of that and handled that section last week. And then verse 10. For, or why, he's going to tell you now why this is the case, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Woof. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to are the words Paul used in reference to those who were, as we just read, going about contradicting sound or healthy doctrine and consequently upsetting or ruining or the word literally means turning upside down the faith of entire families in the Christian community on Crete. Now, you no doubt notice that the words are very strong and quite serious in tone. Did you notice that? I hope you noticed that. These words, I believe, were not only meant to shame these false teachers, something that seems to have left our culture, the idea of shame, was very much part of ancient culture. They were meant to shame these false teachers, and for that matter, any who would follow them, these words. But in addition, I believe they, they are as they are, strong and serious, in order to make plain that these false teachers are those who claim to know God, but whose teaching was turning others away from the truth, or the true message of salvation and life in Christ, these people should not, must not, be given anyone's ear. Concerning the Cretans' Christian faith, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, your spiritual growth your instruction in the gospel, and your knowing God's will for you as followers of Christ, those matters will not be met by these people. These people concerning those things are of no value and of no benefit to you. They should not have your ear. Why so serious, Paul? Why not let these, uh, these folks who claim to know God Freely share their truth. Huh? I mean, that's kind of the, the stuff we hear today, you know? Everyone has their own truth, and every truth is equal and as valid as your truth, or any truth for that matter. Why not let them speak? Why not be open to the other views on God and or salvation? Why not? Well, beloved, because of what's at stake. Because of what's at stake. And what is at stake? The truth of the gospel is what was and is, even today, as this dangerous speech makes its way through churches, through Christian communities. It is and was what is at stake. That is the saving and sanctifying message, genuine message of God. That is what was and continues to be under attack. And so, people's precious souls were in danger. Could anything be more important? 
beloved? Could any, hey, could anything be more important? Could anything be more serious? Listen to how Paul speaks in Galatians concerning the same matter, the gospel under attack by those who claim to know God and be speaking for him. He says in Galatians 1, if you think, wow, Paul, you seem, you seem really worked up. Yeah, he is, and rightly so. And we see it here in Galatians as well. He says to the church there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Did you catch that? There are not 20 different gospels. There, there, there may be 20 gospels, but only one is genuine and true. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the true gospel, the gospel of Christ. And listen to what he says. But even if we, Paul, the apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So if we lose our minds and come along and say something different from what we said before, then let us be accursed. If a, if a divine messenger should flow down out of heaven and preach something different from the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Nine, as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And in case you aren't aware of the word or how, it, you know, to understand the word accursed, one translation of the Bible translates it this way, let him be condemned to hell. That's, you could translate it that way, or eternally condemned. Wow, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound nice. That, and someone might even say that doesn't sound loving, but in reality, it's the most loving thing one could say. It really is. It's a warning about the most serious matter in the world. In Acts 20, just so you see that this is what Paul was about. This is what we see in the New Testament over and over again. Really, many of the New Testament letters are, are built around defending the gospel that was continually under attack. He says in chapter 20 and verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, from among your own selves, those professing to know God, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And look what he says. Remembering that for three years, 
I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Huh? That's how serious this was. And it still is. It still is. So, in describing the false teachers on the island of Crete, and these serious words, these strong words, looking back now at verse 10, I just want to review those with you. Paul says that these are, that there are many, many, right? How many exactly on the island, we do not know, but clearly it wasn't a small number. Otherwise, he would have used a different word. Which made the matter all the more serious, right? I mean, if it's just Bob over there, you know, over in that portion of the island, all right, just, you know, he's yapping. No one's paying attention. That wasn't the case. There were many. So it made the matter serious. And it also made the instruction for Titus to appoint qualified elders in all the churches all the more important. Now we see the urgency and the need. Elders that would, qualified elders, that would be able to care for, watch over, protect, instruct the flock and rebuke those even those who might be in their flock who were not holding to sound doctrine and were leading people astray. And beloved, what I want you to note, as we will see, is that what made this all the more dangerous is that they profess to know God. I don't, don't miss that. These are not pagans, and they're not atheists, Okay? Because it's easier for you and I as Christians to go, yeah, yeah, those are pagan. Those are people who don't believe, you know, in my God, don't believe in Christianity. Uh, they reject it outright. Or those are people that don't even believe in a God, and so they're yapping. Why would I listen to them about spiritual matters, right? So pretty easy. But what happens when it's one of your, quote, own, those who claim to be? followers of Christ in one way or another, and then saying things that are twisted, you could be deceived if you're not careful, if you're not watching out, because you just assume we're all on the same page, we're all on the same team. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Then there are three terms in verse 10 that describe the many, and like I said, as we work through these terms, realize they're heavy. They're not light. They're serious. They're strong. But as I said, for the purposes of certainly making sure that those who may have been taken up by them or tempted to listen to them would realize, don't give these people an ear. Don't give them an ear. They have nothing good to offer when it comes to the matter of your faith. And so we too, as we think about this, need to consider these things, how serious this issue is. Three terms that describe the many. Insubordinate. You see that in the text? Insubordinate. Rebellious. Disobedient. In what sense? And this is what I, I think is helpful. I think I thought about as I'm trying to explain this to you. In what sense were they insubordinate or rebellious? You know? Listen. Let me just tell you. It's in this sense, in the context. It is in rejecting and perverting the pur pure truth of the gospel that God's appointed and authorized messengers preached. In other words, they refuse these people to place themselves under or submit to the trustworthy message of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these false teachers were not faithful servants of God, as they no doubt made themselves out to be, 
but rather, in reality, they were rebels, a law unto themselves in these matters, as one person put it, defiantly teaching others what they ought not or what ought not to be taught. That is the context in which they are insubordinate. And the reason I say that, or rebellious, is I think maybe sometimes we're looking like, in other words, in every other area of their life, or for the most part, outwardly, they may not look rebellious. They may be just normal, good folks, good folks. But in the thing that matters most, the gospel, they're insubordinate. And that makes them the most dangerous. You hear me? So I think sometimes we're looking for like the boogeyman or someone who is uh, obviously a whack job, right? But a whack job, I don't know if that's a term you know, but I hope hopefully you know it. I'm using it. I just realized I don't even know if they know what I'm talking about. But, you know, a crazy person in some sense or really out there, how far would they get with you in telling you that they have truth in regard to the gospel? Probably not that far, right? So the enemy's no dummy. Satan's no dummy. He clothes these folks in nice clothes, right? So that's why the wolf comes in and he dresses as a sheep. If he came in as a wolf, the sheep would run. So he comes in as a sheep. Or at least that's how Satan dresses them up. So for the most part, they'll look probably normal and even possibly be nice folks. But don't be misled. They are insubordinate if they preach or teach things they ought not to teach that are contrary to the one and only true, genuine gospel message. They are rebels. Rebels against God. No matter what their life looks like, know this. In this matter, in the most important matter, they are rebels. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? They are Empty talkers. These are Paul's words. Empty talkers. You know what that is? Useless, profitless talk. In this case, in regard to spiritual matters, right? So they, they might be, they could be a, a professor and provide great talk on whatever subject they teach and be intellectual and, and good at what they do. And no one would say they are empty talkers. But they may be when it comes to spiritual matters because they offer nothing of value, only things that are twisted and perverted and lead people away from the purity of Christ. You see what I'm saying? So, so just because someone has high standing in the community or in, in an intellectual community or says they're a scholar doesn't mean that they also can't be an empty talker in regard to these matters profitless speech one writer said their preaching and teaching is based on the musings of their own warped imaginations speculations and knowledge set up against the word of god another writer says this their empty talk was undoubtedly presented under the guise of teachings that were important for the spiritual well-being of the various homes where they sought a following but their teachings consisted of things that must not be taught. And in this case, we'll get to a tales and legalistic rules that were not in accord with the sound teaching of Scripture. It makes me think of Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons as they go house to house, right? 
making their way into people's homes. And again, for all other purposes and, and accounts, very kind people often, nice, sweet, caring. Yet they are insubordinate, empty talkers. That's what they are. And again, this is not for you to say, um, well, you're, you're less important than me or I'm better than you. It's for you to be warned concerning their speech when it comes to teaching you about spiritual matters or anybody else for that matter. You should not give them an ear. We'll see what we should do in a second, but you should not give them an ear. I don't care how nice they are or how kind they are or how welcoming they are, any of those things. Do you get it? Because otherwise, how do these people make it into people's homes? Well, of course, they, were, they, they seemed, you know, well, sure, why? They seem innocent, welcome them in. I know Bob, he, he comes and we gather together. He seems like a nice enough guy. He says he has a word for us, a helpful word for us, that, something to show us concerning, you know, the gospel. He, he, he will help us know it better. So in some way, it will make us better Christians. Why don't we give them an ear? Don't give them an ear. That's what Paul's saying. And finally, deceivers. I think you understand the word, yeah? They were leading people astray. Astray from what? The gospel. So it, again, it doesn't mean they lie about everything. But in regard to the truth of the gospel, they are lying. They are turning people away from the truth. They were not to be trusted as spiritual teachers. Okay? He goes on, for there are many who are insubordinate in verse 10. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like any kind of party I'd want to attend. <laughs> it literally says those of the circumcision, okay? And that's the ESV's way of trying to, okay, what's that? The circumcision party. In this case, Paul's, it appears Paul is saying, Listen, there are many out there, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, but the most active offenders in this matter were those of the circumcision or the circumcision party. Who is the circumcision party? I'm not going to spend a long time working through all of this other to say uh, I think it's best to understand that they were a Jewish element within the church or converts from Judaism those who had converted to, in some way, or professed to convert to Christianity, said they were followers of Christ. Uh, John MacArthur says, from ancient records, it is known that many Jews lived on the island of Crete. If you go back to Acts 2.11, you see they were there on the day of Pentecost. They heard the message. said there were Cretans there. Um, they were there for the celebration, and they would have gone back to their island. So certainly that, uh, they, heard, they heard the gospel presented there and probably took it back to the island, we assume. But from the apostles' comments here, a number of them, John MacArthur says, apparently were Judaizers, is another way to refer to this group. Judaizers wanted to impose Old Testament ceremonial standards and sometimes even rabbinical uh, traditions, the religious leaders' traditions, on Gentile believers. And one of those, as you see, work back and forth in the New Testament letters is the issue of circumcision, right? So just Paul likes to refer to them as a circumcision party because they would refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcised, because they were. And they would make an issue of this, you know, they did make an issue of this. There was even fights that went back and forth about, hey, 
If you want to, yeah, it's not enough to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also must be circumcised. That was one of the big issues, and we see that worked out. That was even the case in Galatians. Now, you got to be circumcised, and you have to come under the law, and, 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 and also rabbinical traditions, and so on and so forth, that were added to the law. And laws added to the laws on top of the law. So they were, they were perverting and twisting the, the purity of uh, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. End of story. Uh, Paul's use, one writer says, Paul's use of the term circumcision to refer to the Jews calls attention to the kind of issues that were at the heart of the false teaching facing the Cretans. So there's a particular kind of false teaching that's taking place. But just to draw back a little bit, any perversion of the gospel, any distortion of it, anything that would uh, uh, cause us to think differently or not rightly about how one is really saved and how one grows in their Christianity and become sanctified would be something that would fit under this category of these guys are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, okay? And that is the case even today. Because we generally don't, you know, you don't really have, we don't really face the issue so much of people saying, hey, you gotta be circumcised. And for that matter, most of us are. So I guess we'd be okay either way. You know what I'm saying? Like back, I mean, Gentiles, that is, Gentiles. Now we do it. Not everyone, but now, you know, a number of us are done. But we'd be like, hey, I'm circumcised, I'm good either way, or whatever you say. But no, it's not whatever you say. If you're saying that this salvation requires that one be circumcised, then you have said something that is not true of the gospel message. You have added to salvation. It's not enough. It's not enough to believe in Christ. You must also do this. You must also do this. And of course, the this has grown in the number of things that one must do in order to be saved by those who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and yet profess to know God and follow Christ. You with me? Good, good, good. So he goes on to say, it, this kind of you know, fills us in on what the teaching might have been, the false teaching. Some form of Judaistic religious works were being added to faith in Christ for salvation and or sanctification. So if you want to become more like Jesus, you got to do this as opposed to what the scriptures say. You know, trusting in him, submitting to the word, living by the, the spirit, right? No, you also have to do this little thing over here if you really want to be more pure, sanctified, or a better Christian per se, or even saved for that matter. In addition, there was this thing of Jewish myths. Jewish myths, it's mentioned in the text, um, that these, these folks were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and, in verse 14, commands of people who turn away from the truth. So let's look at both. Let's discuss those quickly. Jewish myths. Listen, we don't know the exact uh, content of these Jewish myths. So you have these Judaizers. They're there teaching things they ought not to teach, which includes commands of people who turn away from the truth. We'll get to that. And also these Jewish myths. Well, we don't know the exact content of these Jewish, Jewish myths, but... What, what is a myth? Huh? Yeah, it, okay, yeah, it's a story, a legend, or something like that, right? Is it true? No, that's why they call it a myth, right? But notice what Paul called, it is a myth. It's not something you should give yourself to. They're tantalizing you in some way or another, uh, and I could see them even, people love to hear stories, you know? They love to hear stories, so look, I've got some, I've, have you heard this one? And somehow maybe they're taking these stories, we know something that you've never heard before. In fact, I would just say, if, you, I, if I ever get up here, if I ever get up here and you hear me say, I'm gonna tell you something that's never been said concerning the gospel, run. Run. 
the elders should knock me to the floor, the other elders, the rest of you run and then come back in after it's safe, okay? Because clearly I've been possessed by a demon, which is not possible because I am a child of God. But if I were to do such things, then you should question even my salvation. If I'm going to tell you something. People, it's tantalizing, really? Ooh, I didn't know this. And somehow they're using these myths probably to gain an audience, maybe? Or maybe to give some instruction that's not right and not good. Um, one scholar says they were legends or fictitious tales about added to Old Testament history, tales about Adam, Moses, Elijah, and other Old Testament saints. And somehow they worked that into their, their idle, their uh, empty talk. The commands of people who turn away from the truth, though, the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Would you do me uh, a favor and, uh, and turn to the left, to Mark? I want to read a section. Just read it. I'm not going to comment on it. Mark 7. So Matthew, your New Testament starts with Matthew, right? Matthew, and then the next one is Mark. It's the second gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the second gospel. Turn to Mark 7. I just want to read this to you. I just want you to hear it, and the Spirit of God will help you with these things clearly as you hear it, as we think about the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What might Paul be talking about? I think it's this. I think it's this, and it'll make sense as we look at uh, another part of Titus in a second. Here we go. Commands of people. So they're, they're devoted to and they're teaching commands of people who turn away from the truth. Truth of the gospel. Verse 1. I'm going to read 23 verses quickly. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes, the hymn is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then we have a commentary here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Okay, you might think this is just good hygiene. It's, it's not. I mean, it is, but that's not why they're doing it. It's a, they're requiring it. If one doesn't do it, then they're defiled, defiled before God. This is a tradition, a command of men that was added, Okay. And when they came from the market, they, they don't even say, and there are many other traditions, we're told in this gospel, that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. What is that? Okay. Yeah, dining couch. Okay, five. Sorry. Sometimes I get lost, too, in the middle of what I'm doing. All right, five. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Boom! Smack! I, I, I love to watch these. I'm going to hope to see that these movies are all recorded, that we can watch them in heaven. <laughs> As it is written, and he quotes the word of God, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He's addressing their whole ceremonial regulations concerning the washing of hands and pots and pans. And, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. He's talking about food and, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person all right you with me so just reading that so one writer in connection with this and these commands of people who turn away from the truth were who were judaizers uh or those holding to jewish traditions and now trying to overlay them on top of the gospel or make them a part of the saving and sanctifying message of jesus christ he says it appears obvious that the commandments of men here in Mark, uh, that we see refers to Jewish ceremonial rituals involving the religious concept of clean and unclean. Those persons who tenaciously hold to these human commandments or traditions, which he says they are religious rituals that have no real meaning, are those who reject the truth according to Paul, Titus 1.14, or who have let go of the commands of God according to Jesus in Mark 7.8. Continuing on with what Paul says about them, he says in verse 11, they are upsetting whole families by teaching, and he adds, for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. Beloved, we've talked about this, the idea of shameful gain, and remember, an elder, that's one of his qualifications. He cannot be someone who is given to sordid gain, filthy lucre. Well, these guys are guilty of it. These guys who profess to know God and are speaking, say they're speaking on his behalf and, and giving you instruction in the good things of God and in the gospel. They're guilty of shameful gain. These folks were looking to profit off the Christian community in one way or another. What that looked like exactly is not described, but it, it indicates at minimum that the motives of these people were not pure. Yes, materialistic motives. One writer says, perhaps these false teachers were receiving gifts from their followers in some way. You know, I could use a little help to continue this, you know, this work that I'm doing, this good work that I'm doing, or in some way benefiting from them financially. Another author says, throughout the history of the church, false preachers and teachers have used their positions and slanted their messages to promote their own financial gain. Is that not true? And as I said to you many times before, turn on TBN, you'll find a whole number of them, a whole slew of them, right? Prosperity preachers. 
And of course, you know, they're, you always think, well, they're just, they're just sending a good message that God wants us to all be prosperous. Yes, of course, that, and that's not, that's not a biblical message, okay? And prosperous means perfect health, great wealth, bogus in this life, right? All lie. But of course, they teach that because then they're going to model that for you by having great wealth that you're going to give them in your offerings so that you too can be like me. I would add, and beloved, think about this. I think too, Christians, just generally speaking, Christians are, I'm using, they're generous. They can be very generous. They want to help. I think, I think that would be a work of the spirit, right? On one level, they, they want to help. They want to advance the good news. I'm not saying everyone who gives to, especially in these ministries, sometimes it's greed. They're like, okay, especially if they're buying this. All right, right now, if you give in the next 30 minutes, every dollar you give will be multiplied by 10 into your life. I think that's probably greed that's driving that because that's what these people say. These false teachers say things like that. It's right now in the next hour is the hundredfold ministry. And if you give, so beloved, don't give a dollar. That's only going to return a hundred. Give a thousand. Some of you can give 10,000. I bet you right now, I just heard from the the Lord himself. He just spoke into my mind. One of you out there has $100,000 that you can give. (laughs) I bet you're calling right now. Don't hesitate. Don't deny the work of the Spirit in your life. Pick up the phone and make that phone call. Believe me, my friends, it'll come back to you a hundredfold. I don't know why I went that way. I was trying. I had some. I don't. I don't. But anyway... I don't know what happened. I lost my train, but uh, it went off the rails. But bad, okay? Oh, I said people are generous, right? So yeah, some folks greedy. But others, I just generally speaking, generous. But not discerning. Not discerning. Generosity without discernment is dangerous. Especially when it comes to advancing the gospel or the work of Christ. Don't be just giving your money away without making sure as best you can and if they're preaching lies, and of course that means you have to know the truth, they shouldn't have one penny of your money, which is actually God's money. So then you're using God's money to support those who work against God. You don't want to be doing that. You with me? So be cautious in who you give money to. Or help or support to. All right? But I would add that doesn't mean that if someone isn't looking for any financial support that you can immediately assume they are safe. Because I was just thinking about that. In this case, yeah, they're greedy for gain. Uh, they are shameful gain is what, you know, they're, they're, they have m- uh, materialistic motivations, these guys. And Paul calls that out. And so certainly that would be clear. Like, oh, yeah, they were trying to get me to help them and support them and all this, right? But that doesn't mean every person would. I could just see as a work of the enemy, I could see someone coming humbly to you and saying, oh, no, I, I want nothing from you. All I want to do is give is give, listen to me. Oh, this man must be trusted. He doesn't even want anything from me. Not necessarily. You know what I'm saying? He may not want money, but maybe he's going to want something else. So looking back again at the text, one of the Cretans, a prophet of the road, <laughs> this is Paul, I can't wait to meet, I honestly, I cannot wait to meet him. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, he says this is the middle of this, all these strong words here. He's just going to bring it even harder, but now he's going to use Cretans' own words against them. 
He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Huh, this testimony is true. What? So generally speaking, and we talked a little bit about this before, Cretans were not known for having good morals, okay? So Paul here draws on a saying, we believe, that came from a well-known and revered man among the Cretans from, it was from the Cretans' past, 600 years prior, 600 B.C. I don't know how to pronounce his name, whatever, Epimenides. One scholar points out that in ancient times, he, this man was considered to be one of the seven great wise men of Greece. So a notable man among the Cretans, certainly, and even in Greece at large. The implication of what Paul is saying is that the false teachers fit the Cretan stereotype. That's what he's doing. He's not, he's not just lambasting. He's not just putting everybody under the bus. You know, obviously, there's Christians who are Cretans. He's just saying, in regard to these guys, they fit the bill. One writer says, they fit the bill, teaching things they ought not to teach, prove them to be liars, their rebellious, out-of-control nature in regard to not coming under the word of God and the, and the gospel message preached by the apostles, prove them to be evil beasts, and their desire for shameful gain, prove them to be lazy gluttons. These Cretan false teachers who evidently claimed to be Christians were in fact living up to the reputation given them as given them as unregenerate people centuries before Christ. Yeah. You see the seriousness, the harshness of it? But in but something that needed to be done. And then in verse 15, he makes this statement. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, that would be a reference to the false, these empty talkers, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, I'm just going to say this, especially for the sake of time. I believe that fits with Mark 7, and I believe he's addressing a matter that was one of the issues of their false teaching. And so the best uh, thing I've found on this and I'll just uh, share it with you in regard to what exactly that means. And just to, can you pop that back up there for a second, brother? And just to show you how messed up people can be, to the pure, all things are pure. I've, I found multiple cases where the commentators had to say, now this doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, then nothing is sin to you. Why would you say that? Well, because people have tried to twist that to say to the pure, all things are pure. So he's, he's saying to Christians, it's okay, they can do anything because everything's pure to them. That is not what it's saying. But of course, people love to, they have a thought, an idea, and then they go looking for a scripture that they can twist or pervert to try to support them and then give them authority in what they say. But it's their imaginative speculations and their nonsense. And then they look to the word of God to try to, to make it say what they want it to say. But anyway, saying all that, what does that mean? Well, if he's addressing the issue, the one writer says this, all things are pure, not to be rejected, to those who are pure, since they have been cleansed by faith in Christ, but to those who are, and he's talking about ritually pure, there's no issue, this is why he says you're free to eat, there's, there's no issues here, but those but then he says, but to those who are morally corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. So what is, what is going on there? So he's referring to these, these false teachers, these uh, 
these empty talkers. He says this, at this point, Paul is picking up on the common Jewish motif that whatever a defiled person touches is by that fact likewise defiled. So he's basically saying these folks that are going around saying you can't touch this and you can't touch that because it's defiled, they themselves are defiled. And so anything they're really touching, if we want to play by those rules, is defiled. They're, all, they're, they're the defile police, but they're defiling everything because they themselves are defiled because they have not been cleansed and washed by the precious blood of Christ. That's what he's saying, I think. I think. So he goes on. So the point is, instead of becoming or keeping themselves pure by eating pure things, which is what we're, we're going to make ourselves more righteous, more sanctified by only eating what is pure, according to them, the very fact that they consider anything impure and therefore need regulations for their own purity is the demonstration that the false teachers are themselves corrupted. They are so precisely because they also do not believe. That's what it says. That is, they do not put their trust in Christ fully and completely. It's Christ plus this. No, it's Christ alone. End of story. Which uh, Thomas has made, made so clear as he took us through the book of Colossians and the issues that were going on there. The one who seeks purity by obedience to regulations, that is human commandments, turns out to be the, not one of God's people at all, but among the unbelieving. Their minds and consciences are corrupted because they think that they will be defiled by eating certain foods, but even more so because they would lay such commandments on God's elect who have put their faith and hope in Christ. One writer pointing out, you know, the differences between that culture, our culture, what's going on now. He says, the cults today may not be into Jewish dietary laws, but invariably, they are into legalism. They teach that you can commend yourself to God by doing certain man-made commandments. Beloved, can you commend yourself to God by doing something, such as fulfilling some ritual or task? You cannot. It is Jesus Christ, his work, his life, his righteousness that makes you acceptable to God. And so in order to get there, you have to put your faith, trust, confidence in him and him alone and nothing else. You've got nothing to offer. You can't do anything to make yourself right before him. Or to keep yourself right with him or to ever earn or deserve being right with God or being a child of God. You can't do it. It's always faith and trust in Christ alone. And then finally in verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. See? They are, as if he's not done, he's like, no, I'm not done. They are detestable. You know what? That word can also be translated abominable. Abominable. They are detestable, abominable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And as I said, does that sound harsh? Let me ask a different one. Let me ask it a different way. Is that hate speech? Nope. Someone might say such things. I call it love speech. It is a love for the gospel, a love for God, a love for his people, and I would argue a love for those caught up in these lies as well. You don't, you don't, pat them on the back and say, yeah, it's all right. I mean, yeah, you got a different view. I know you see things a little bit differently than I do, but you're still a nice guy, so it's okay. No, not when it comes to these matters. These are eternal matters. These are these, you're in or out based on these things. 
What you believe matters, beloved, concerning Christ, his work, his saving work. It matters. You can't just believe anything and get in. It doesn't work like that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, whatever you want to believe. It's all the same. No, it's not. If that is true, then we can't make sense of this text. One writer says the irony. He says the persons who find abomination everywhere, oh, that's detestable, you can't touch this, you can't touch that, are themselves abominable. They obey human commands, but they are disobedient to God himself. Therefore, they are unfit for doing anything good. Finally, what does Paul say we must do? What must be done? What instructions does he give to Titus? And this instruction we pass on to the elders and to the church at large for that matter, but the elders primarily responsible for these tasks and setting examples in this way. But he says in verse 11, they must be silenced. Huh? They must be given a voice. They must be listened to. I mean, isn't that fair? It reminds me of, and, and I say that because that's our culture nowadays. It's like, it's like having someone tell me, a parent tell me, you know what, I did not indoctrinate my children with Christianity. No. Rather, I gave them instruction in all the ways of religion, all the various religions, and I'm going to let my child grow up and make their own decision. You're a fool. I mean, I mean that, and I say that not like I'm better than you because I'm not, I'm, I've been, my mind has been made clear and my eyes open by the grace of God alone. Not because I'm awesome or specially intellectual or good or better than them, I'm not. But I say, you are a fool, you gotta know that's not right. You're, you're, you are setting your child up for failure in the worst way. It's so, you notice though, it's with religion that this is done because I don't ever see a parent say, you know what, I mean, in regards to using drugs or something, I, I think I should just give them the options. There's people that do it. They seem okay. They can function at that level. And I'm just going to show them all the drugs and the consequences maybe of those drugs or whatever. But I'll let them decide whether or not they want to do drugs or not or which ones they want to do. What parent would say? You'd be like, uh, I'm calling social services, right? But when it comes to religion, then we bow, people bow down and go, oh, that's so enlightening. It's so nice and right for you to do. Just let them make up their own mind. Right, right to hell. Really, is what's happening. No, you indoctrinate your kids with the truth of Christianity. Anyway, silence. They must be silenced. It translates a rare verb. I'm almost done, I promise. A rare verb meaning to close the mouth by means of a muzzle or gag. So the offenders then, in this case, the offenders were to be refused. It would practically, how does that work out? You know, like duct tape. No, not like that. That's not what he's saying. But they would be refused opportunity to spread their teachings in the churches. You know, they don't, we're not let, letting you have a voice. If we have any say about it, you will not have a voice. Now, beloved, here's the thing. This is what makes ministry, I think, even that much more difficult in the 21st century. The only way that person would have a voice is if they were there and present, but the voices are everywhere now. They're right on your phones. They're all over the internet, media, everything coming in. So you have to take a much active role of your own household. Silence them. Don't let that nonsense come into your home, into your children's lives, into your spouse's life, into your friend's lives, those you love, your other brothers and sisters, right? I... To the degree that you can, you must stop the spread. To the degree that you can. 
But certainly, we wouldn't let them in. And if someone were in this body and they came in and were saying such wrong things, the first thing to do is silence them. You cannot speak. Okay? You will not have a voice here. Okay? Titus 1.13, it's not just silence them, but it's also rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Uh, another way to translate that is reprove them severely. Reprove them severely. That's another way to translate that, those words. Reprove them severely, rebuke them sharply. Be rigorous and very serious in showing them their fault, their error. That's what it means. One writer said, because of the extreme spiritual danger that those men posed, if they infected the church, Titus was to reprove them severely. It translates a, a, an adverb, compound adverb, which means to cut as with a knife or axe. So he suggests the reproof was to cut with penetrating force. It's intense, man. Like uh, so they've compared it to like a doctor going in after cancer and cutting that out. It's go deep and cut and remove. It's intense. It's serious. Show them the error of their ways. And I would say this, he... He says that they may be sound in the faith and people get hung up on that. What's he talking about, sound in the faith? He's, everything you've said, what do you mean that they may be sound in the faith? So on one level, he may be including those who have got caught up in this nonsense, those believers in the church that maybe have got drawn away. But I, I think on another level, he is saying that they may be sound in the faith, that he's holding out hope that these people need to be reproved. They need to be shown the error of their ways, not only for the sake of those that may have been listening to them or were thinking about listening to them, but also for their own sake, that they have denied the truth of the gospel in their teachings, teaching things they ought not to teach. Praying that they would come to their senses and be saved, for real. He says in Timothy, remember, he says in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Beloved, I, I will close out there. I will say that uh, we have our own clear and present dangers in the church, our own issues. It may not be such as Judaistic uh, revelations or teachings, but we have our own problems that we face. All I, all I want to try to help you to see is that you need to take it seriously, really seriously, and that silencing and rebuking those is not unloving. It's actually the loving thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. It's not okay for us to just sit back and, and tolerate such speech or to let it go. If we, if we have control of such things. You know, some of it we have no control of. I can't, you can't stop everything that's going on on TV, on the internet. Of course not. But in your own circles. And certainly if it's in this community and could impact one of us, this Christian community, it is not okay to just, ah, oh, that's just their opinion. No. The gospel must be protected, defended. And those who would seek to pervert it need to be addressed and dealt with and told the truth about what they're doing and the dangers of it. And we need to see it just that way. There is no greater threat. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask your blessing on it. And thank you for um, the word from Titus today. Help us to, to meditate on it and think clearly about it. And Father, to realize that we are in a war. We are in a real war. And there is certainly a clear and present danger, and it has been the case 
from the very beginning, really. And certainly as the church was formed, Satan has upped his game and increased his attack. And he has so many methods and means and ways. But ultimately, Father, it's on us to know the truth of the gospel, to really know it. That way we can detect those who are off base, who are moved from it. Father, that's the only way we're going to know. And then be able to do something about it. Give us the courage and boldness and love to approach it biblically, rightly, correctly. And to deal with those in a loving way, but in a serious way. Who twist it and add to it and pervert uh, the great gospel that we love and cherish and hold on to. We ask this in Christ's name.